Okay, <clears throat> so as you know, in the last few months, uh, we've been studying in the Gospel of John. You can be open up in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, of course, we've talked a lot about uh, this Gospel. Uh, it's one of the four, but you know, we've, we've talked many times about how it's a little different than the others and that its style of writing, uh, the events are a little different. We call the first three the synoptic docils because they are very similar in events and style of writing. Although they are addressed to different groups of people, they are similar in that respect. John's different, and John has his own style, his own writing, and it's interesting how one of the major themes that we see in there is love. Love that God had for his people that he would send his son to die for us. And we know this throughout. Love is mentioned many times. Even the apostle himself refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He never mentions his own name even. Interesting, isn't it? So that's such a great theme. <clears throat> and it's a great theme as he's been praying. We've been studying about his prayer the last few weeks, the prayer that he had in the garden. And of course, uh, the things he had to say to his disciples and the things he had to say for us in the future. But before we do that, before we get back into that, we need to read what John said about why this gospel was written. We know exactly why. And if you turn over to John chapter 20 and verse 30, and let's read there. And he said, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. For these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's part of it, isn't it? We've talked about that many times, how that love that God had for us, that he can give us the opportunity to have eternal life and abundant life here on earth. In fact, we talked about a lot, I've talked a lot about how we've kind of already begun that life eternal with him, have we not? Sure, we're not physically with him, we're with him in spirit, and we look forward to that time we are with him in heaven. Uh, seeing that great light shining, seeing his great love for us and the heavenly host and all that. But we have that opportunity to have that joyful life, peaceful life, peace that passes all understanding. Peace because we are part of the kingdom of heaven. We have become children of God once we obey the gospel, and we are now in that kingdom as his servants where Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God, where he ascended after his resurrection to, become, to reign in his kingdom. So what a wonderful thing. We're no longer part of this world. We're no longer part of the world in our physical bodies. We're, we're here, but we're not part of it. We're sanctified. We're set apart. We're no longer mindfully part of this world. We're, our thinking should be changing, right? It's kingdom thinking. It's a thinking of spiritual things, not of the world not of the world that's dying, that's dark. In fact, we talked about in John chapter 1, right, that the Word was in the beginning with God and was God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Word became flesh and dwelt among men, that we might see that light, that light that was in this dark world, that came into this dark world, the light that shone on men and shone who God was and what God was all about and provided salvation for us. Well, last week we talked about Jesus' prayer, and which, which we've been talking for the last few weeks, and uh, about the part of his prayer where he's praying for his future believers. You know, we said in the first part of the prayer he's praying for himself to have God establish his glory, the glory he had, 
uh, before creation. And then he prayed for his disciples that they might be kept just as he had kept them because he knows he's going away shortly. He's about to leave them alone and he asked God to be with them, to keep them, to lead them. And then he also prays for those in the future who are going to believe through the disciples' preaching, through the disciples' teaching. He's praying for us. He's praying for those who are going to believe without ever seeing Jesus in the flesh. What a wonderful, what a wonderful prayer. Remarkable prayer. Perhaps the greatest prayer ever prayed, right? Some have called it the high priestly prayer. Some even would call it the Lord's Prayer. In fact, you probably should call this one the Lord's Prayer. We refer to the Lord's Prayer as the prayer in Matthew 6, right? Or Luke 11, where he's teaching the disciples how to pray, how you should pray. But this is really, this is the prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Praying for those who are going to carry on his mission, carry on his message after he's gone back to the Father. And we learn a lot about what was weighing on his mind at that time. His hour had come. He's soon to go to the cross, right? And we see what really concerns him, what really weighs on his mind. He's concerned about the well-being of his disciples, obviously. And he wants his followers to be one. In other words, united. And today we're going to look at that a little bit further. We're going to look at that unity that he was praying about, that he was asking the Father to keep them as one, that they might be one and unified, and those we're going to believe in the future. Why was this so important to Jesus? What, what has Jesus done and that it might be accomplished? In our, in our religiously divided world today, and right, that, that's right, in our, our religious world today is very divided, right? There's all kinds of different beliefs and sects of, of Christianity and other things that it's so divided, it's hard to know, you know what's right. It's hard for an outsider looking in to say, who, who has the right thing? Who, who, who's, who's got it all together? In our religiously divided world, how are we able to maintain unity that Jesus prayed for? As believers, as disciples, how are we able to do that? Let's read what he said in his prayer again. John chapter 17, beginning of verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Very powerful a uh, few verses there, right? Very powerful statement, very great request that he's asking the Father there. So that the world may believe. Interesting, isn't it? He says that in these verses. He's saying this unity, keep them as one, keep them unified, that the world may believe. What does that mean? What's that mean? Why would he say that this needs to be done that the world may believe. Well, if you think about it a little bit, it does make sense. Without unity, without a common bond, without a common goal, a common spirit, a common belief system, it becomes very difficult to persuade others, doesn't it? It becomes difficult 
to teach anybody and make them believe that Jesus was sent from God, right? If you can't be unified about that, if you can't be together on that, why would you blame someone for not wanting to believe? Those in the world are not going to care so much about your doctrine, right? They're not going to care so much about your theology or what you say is true because you're just a man. You're just a person. You're just a human being in the flesh just like them. How are they supposed to know what is true? How are they supposed to know what you're saying is true? And how are they supposed to know that you're, you're Jesus was sent from God? In a world that's so divided, right? Socially, racially, right? Culturally, we have division everywhere. Unity can captivate the attention of anyone, right? Because we're so divided. So many things are divided. We've seen that so, so well this past year, right? The divisions that are out there. The divisions in our nation. The divisions in our world, right? Over so many different things. Well, not saying this to say that doctrine isn't important. Not saying that. But that's not necessarily what the world's looking for, right? That's not necessarily what the world wants to see. Jesus already emphasized that in John chapter 8. Let's turn over to John chapter 8 and read a verse from there. Verse 31. And just read again what Jesus said about doctrine and abiding in him. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Of course, we had a, a long study, a long lesson on that, right? We are to abide in his doctrine, obey his will, understand what he has to teach us, understand what he has to say to us, and by abiding in that word and doing his will, we are set free. That truth has set us free. We're no longer slaves to sin, right? We are set free from slavery, the slavery of sin. We now know the truth, and the truth can set us free. But preaching truth Preaching truth to people, which we try to do, right, without being unified, is not going to help at all. It's not going to look good. It's not going to persuade people. They're going to see divisions and say, you know, one can't decide what's right and the other one, you know, what the other one can do. It's differences. There's divisions, right? When we are united in Christ, it gives great weight to our claims, a great weight to the claim that. We might say that Jesus came from God. Well, we read about how the Son of God, said, how Jesus said, uh, God lives in his heart, right? God is in him, and he is in us. He is transforming our lives with the power of his resurrected life. Therefore, by doing this, we have to be together. We have to be unified. In fact, you might say, some have even said, this is the last apologetic, right? The apologetic meaning uh, how we show our faith, how we defend our faith to others out in the world. That's the last apologetic. If we're not unified, we can't do it. If we're not together, we can't teach others. We can't be an example to others, right? If we're not together, if we're divided on these things. Verse 23, again, he says that the world may know. Jesus again emphasizes the power of this unity among his disciples. Not only that they may know that God sent Jesus, but that God has loved them, right? Just as he loved his only begotten son. We read about that in John 3, right? The verse we all know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only begotten son. You see, that's something we need to be teaching. We need to be telling. God loves you, and he wants you to be saved. So much so that he sent his only son to die for you. But, again, if we're not unified, if we're divided, it makes it very hard to teach that, right? It makes it very hard for someone in the world to understand that. Uh, we read last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, of course, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is dealing with divisions in the church in Corinth for about the first four chapters of that, of that letter. And he's saying, look, you are not to be of Apollos or of Peter or of me, but you are to be of Jesus Christ in one, one unified in Jesus Christ. You were baptized into him, and now you are part of his body. You're part of the kingdom. So that unity has to be paramount in our discipleship. And our efforts to eliminate any kind of religious division should be paramount, right? Now this congregation has always, when I, as long as I've been here, been, I think, very unified. Uh, very, very uh, scripturally unified as one. Sure, there's probably some uh, differences in some beliefs, but all in all, in Jesus, we are unified. We are one. We are together. And I think that has made for this congregation to thrive, for this congregation to grow. Of course, God's doing that, but through that unity, this congregation has been able to become a great light for this community around us here, for the people around us. How do we, how do we attain this unity? How do, we, how do we grasp it? Well, Jesus says here he's provided glory. He's provided his glory for us. What's that mean? He's providing the glory which he received from the Father. When we talked about the first part of the uh, prayer, he said, uh, give me back my glory. Give, give me the glory that I had at the beginning of creation, at the beginning of the world, before time. And he's provided that glory for us. How so? How are we glorifying him? How are we receiving that glory? Through our doing his will, right? Our obedience to his will. That's how we glorify him. He's given us his power. He's given us his glory, which has enabled us to be disciples, which has enabled us to be servants and uh, messengers to the world and to be unified. What is this glory that he's talking about here? Well, it may involve the fact that he's talking about we need to abide in him. All right? We need to be constantly abiding in him. Turn over to John chapter 15. Let's read a few verses from there. John chapter 15, and let's start with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So perhaps this glory that he's talking about that he's giving us is the glory that we get from abiding in him, from being in his word, understanding what he's saying. Being unified, being one in his name. That has to happen. How do we do that? It's a constant thing, right? Every day we're in prayer with him. We're in service to him. We're in the word. I said that many times. 
It's a constant thing going on. Well, whatever this glory refers to, we should note that true unity is not from us. True oneness does not come from us. It comes from the Lord. Turn over to the book of Ephesians, and let's read a few verses from there. And this is a very, very good passage. Um, this is where Paul talks about the unity that we need to have. And I want to read this. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> and let's just, let's just start with chapter, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that ye once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what he's saying there is, you were Gentiles. You didn't have law. You didn't have the ordinances. You didn't have God. That's what he's telling folks in Ephesus. And what else does he say here? Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For, though, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What he's saying there is both Jew and Gentile now can be united in Christ. Not by, what anything, not by anything they did, by Jesus going to the cross. They were far off, now they can draw near. Same thing for us, right? We can be unified. When we obey that doctrine, when we become a Christian, we become one with all believers in the world. Interesting, isn't it? That's a very powerful set of verses. There was a division. It's very well noted. We can read about it in the Old Testament between Jew and Gentile. But when Jesus died on the cross, that ended. Jesus made it possible for us to be one body. Last week I talked about the seven ones, right? Let's go over there and read it again. Turn over to chapter 4 there in peace. Just in fact, probably on the same page. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that unity word there. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The seven ones. All because of the cross. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting how Jesus provided that. <clears throat> we are baptized, therefore, into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we are baptized into one body. And by the way, did you notice the one baptism there? That's for another study, but there's not two, like some might tell you. There's only one, and that's what we practice, the water, water baptism, 
where Romans 6 says we are raised to newness of life afterward. There's no more spirit baptism. That happened a couple of times in the New Testament. Had a very strict purpose, but there's only one baptism. Paul's telling them that there in Ephesus. Thus, we begin our Christian life united with all believers in Christ. So, that provide, presents a challenge to us, doesn't it? If we, are, if we begin unified, if we begin in unity, we have to maintain that, right? We have to continue to be unified, or else the world's not going to believe. For the world to believe, we have to contend in that unity, right? The maintenance of that unity. It requires we obey that doctrine I talked about, right? That doctrine that I said the world doesn't care about. The world doesn't care so much about what your doctrine is. They want to see what you do, what your, what your life is like. Are you in unity with others? Are you together or are you divided? But we have to do have a standard, don't we? To be unified, you've got to have a standard, just like, you know, weights and measures. We've got to have a standard, right? Or else every time you went to the grocery store, there'd be chaos, right? And believe it, with masks right now, having to go into Kroger, the last thing is I want more chaos. But that's... A, a great thing, right? We, we got to have a standard, and we have that. So we can be confident when we go to purchase goods, we know what we're getting, don't we? We can see 30 cents a pound. We know what that means, right? We have to have standards in religion, in our belief system. Religious divisions occur for what reason? Why do they occur? Well, obviously, there's a different standard of authority. People take authority from different places rather than where they should be bring, taking it from, right? We can't maintain unity for which Jesus died unless we agree on where that authority comes from, right? Unless we agree on that state, on that standard. And our standard must be that which originated from Jesus Christ. That which originated from him, as we read there in John 8, where we have to abide in him, abide in his doctrine, and that which was delegated to his apostles. Turn over to chapter 13 there in John. Let's read something else. John chapter 13. And let's go in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he receives whomever I send receives me. And he receives me receives him and receives him who sent me. In other words, he's saying whom I send you can believe. Because these were given to him by God. So we have to have a standard of authority that originates from Christ, delegated to his apostles, and that were written and uh, proclaimed by his apostles. First Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about that, how these men wrote things, and that you can believe Jesus was sent from God because of that. So being taught by his apostles, we have to be careful to do some things, right? First of all, we have to observe all that he has commanded us. That's in the Great Commission, is it not? Matthew 28. Observing all things that he's commanded. Not just a little bit of it. Not just part of it. Not just this or that. All of it. 
We have to be diligent about that. We have to be careful about not allowing traditions of men or commandments of men to creep into that. Right? Turn over to the book of Matthew. Let's read a few verses around that. Matthew 15. Beginning in, uh, let's just beginning in verse 1, Matthew 15. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. By the way, have you heard that statement this year? You didn't wash your hands before you ate bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, what, Whatever profit you might have, have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, the reference there is Isaiah was talking about it, even in, back in the, in the day, in the old times, right? They're obeying the commandments of men. The Pharisees were doing this. They were looking at tradition as scripture, as law. They were making the commandments of men higher than the doctrine of God, higher than the teachings of the Lord. The apostles' doctrine must be the standard, not the doctrine of men. That has to be the authority, just as Jesus prayed for those who will believe in me through their word. He prayed that. He said, those in the future, I pray for them that will hear about me through them. Well, what else does it require? It requires a mind of Christ, right? We have to be growing in spirit, growing as disciples, trying to live our lives like Jesus. Never reaching perfection. We can't do that in the flesh. But we are trying to have, uh, live, live in a way that's pleasing to God and showing our love for Him. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And let's read something from there. <clears throat> Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, pay attention here, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Therefore God, is also, has, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus owned himself. He left heaven, Lord himself, didn't consider that an issue, sacrificed himself for us. Who didn't deserve it, by the way. Right? He did that out of love. That's what he's talking about here. We are to have that mind of Christ. Serving others selflessly. Not thinking about ourselves, but being like-minded. And that unifies us, does it not? How can someone be divided if you're serving them? Kind of, you ever heard the old, how you throw water on, what is it? Hold on, I don't keep remembering the phrase now. You know, be kind, show kindness to your enemies. Is that heaping coals on their head or whatever? You're throwing water on the coals, whatever it is. It's hard to be divided when you're doing that, right? When you're serving others. When you're showing somebody that hates you kindness. The world doesn't understand that. Can't get it. Why would you help your enemies? Why would you be nice to somebody that hates you? Being like-minded with Christ, having a mind of Christ allows you to do that. Because what is it? What does it matter? You've already, you've already attained uh, sonship. You've already attained his glory that he's given us by obeying, by becoming a Christian, by becoming a child of God. What difference does it make then? You serve. You show your unity with him and with others. Or he read about Paul writing to Ephesians, we must manifest lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearance in love. Sometimes we don't do that very well in the church, though, do we? Sometimes we tend to get a little selfish. If you're going to be unified, it requires a selflessness, considering of others better than yourself. I know that's easier said than done, but it's very true. To be having a mind of Christ means to be willing to lower yourself for the other for others' sake, even unto death. Man, that's a tough one there. That's a tough one. That's kind of where we're headed. Kind of what we're talking about there. Without a mind of Christ, we will misuse the word of God and destroy the unity that Jesus attained through his death. So, with our doctrine before us, with, with abiding in, him, in that doctrine, believing in him, having the mind of Christ, we can maintain that unity that Jesus attained. Well, I need to talk here about the demonstration of that unity a little bit, Okay. That unity in the, in the first century was manifested in a local church, okay? We read about many different churches, church in Jerusalem. We, we see the letters that Paul wrote to the churches that he helped establish on his missionary journeys all throughout uh, Europe and, and Asia Minor at the time. These are local churches. And it's in this context that the local congregation must be unified. And that's where it's most evident in the first century. That's where 
most of our interaction as Christians is, right? I mean, we come here on Sunday to be together with our like-minded, Christ-minded brethren, right? I hope that's why you come, or part of it. Of course, we come to worship and, and honor the Father and show our love for Him. But that's why He provided this for us. That's why the church is, is established here on earth to be together. It's kind of like heaven on earth. Being together with like-minded people, edifying, teaching, growing spiritually together, unified. Therefore, unity begins at home, right? The local congregation, the local church. We may rightly um, deplore religious division, okay? Uh, but our first concern should also always be preserving that unity in our own congregation. In the first century, you see uh, throughout Scripture that churches were established and they had a plurality of elders there that were put there to lead, to, to, to not to rule, to serve. I want to use that word ruling. The only one that's ruling is Christ in his kingdom. But in the New Testament, each congregation was pretty much self-governing, you might say, and independent. They had their own set of elders that would uh, lead, shepherd, make decisions regarding that congregation, similar to what we have here. Let's, let's look over a few examples. Acts. Let's turn over to Acts uh, chapter 14. And beginning in, uh, let's see, beginning in verse 21, Acts 14. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here we have. Paul and his other traveling companions establishing a church throughout these cities, appointing elders that continue to shepherd and lead after they have left. Interesting, isn't it? Turn over to chapter 20. Let's look at a couple of verses there. 20 in chap uh, chapter 20, verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here we have Paul talking to the elders, the church, telling them that they have been appointed through the Holy Spirit to shepherd the flock there. We have other examples of that in 1 Peter. <clears throat> there was no authority in the first century. No example, no command, nothing above that local church. No example whatsoever. And it was only after the apostles died that these things began to change. Uh, this, in your outline, you have a statement from the Holman Bible Dictionary that basically says, during the second century A.D., Churches came to have a single bishop. And that, that bishop came to exercise oversight over nearly, uh, uh, over rural 
churches as well as a city church, okay? So that that bishop's ecclesiastical territory or what became known as a diocese or a see, which you heard, particularly in Catholicism, the bishops of that church would, uh, had been founded by, would say that they had been founded by, the, well, the churches had been founded by apostles and they were said to be in succession to those apostles. And hence, their teaching was held to be just as authentic or authoritatively uh, the same as the apostles. And then by 400 AD, in the West, the Bishop of Rome began to assume extraordinary authority above other bishops. And that's who the Pope is. Another word for the a phrase for the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Okay? He's the elder of Rome. That's when these things begin to come in. No example of this in the first century while the apostles were still living. This came in later. In fact, Ignatius is in your outline shows that in the early second century, the office of bishop over the elders had developed, uh, but it had no example of that in the first century. So these changes came in unscripturally, right? Not part of what Paul had established, not part of what Jesus had prayed for, not part of that unity that he had asked for. This led to the denominational division that we see today, still rampant today, and which presents a religiously divided picture to the world. So, as Christians, we are to be unified in everything we do. The doctrine of Christ is a standard if you know anything about the Restoration Movement, which we more or less came from, that was a, a drive to get back to Scripture, to get away from these man-made creeds, and these man-made doctrines, man-made hierarchies, to get back to that local autonomy that each congregation had. <clears throat> That's the practice that they were doing in the first century. So, unity is important. We need to maintain that. We need to continue with that. And we do that by obeying the doctrine of Christ, which he prayed for in the greatest prayer ever prayed. I hope this has been a good lesson for you. Uh, thank you for your attention. Our time is up.